0: Welcome to the Thing About Therapy podcast, where we discuss a variety of mental health topics, including cultural beliefs and coping skills, while we also provide a therapist's outlook on things and normalize experiences not heavily talked about in society. I'm Kristen Latrella, and with me is
1: Mahogany Hall.
0: Welcome to the Thing About Therapy podcast. You're listening to Kristen Latrella. In Mahogany Hall. And with us is a special guest, uh, Jeremy Brown. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Hi, um, I'm Jeremy. I'm a, a uh, licensed uh, clinical mental health counselor. Uh, I currently work in a private care setting, but before that, I used to work in uh, um, substance abuse for the past uh, two, three years.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for being here with us. We're going to be talking about men and mental health. So being a male in the mental health field, we do have some questions that Jeremy will help us um, to talk about today. And um, just we look forward to your responses. So thank you. Our first question is um, earlier in our first podcast, if you listened before, uh, were The Misconceptions of Therapy, we were wondering what barriers have you noticed or challenges you have faced from being a male in this field?
2: Um, some of the barriers, there's, there's a lot of barriers that typically do come up. Um, <clears throat> some of them are kind of just based off, like, they have, like, lack of resources at times, So like not being able to actually go for therapy, um, many people don't have insurances, but also I think as a man, I think a lot of times the biggest, um, barrier is just the lack of understanding of, you know, their actual emotions of like what they are as well as what their emotions actually mean to them as they do come up.
1: Yeah.
0: That's so important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Kristen. Um, But to just add, you know, to that, I feel like this in general, a lot of people struggle with uh, having that emotional vocabulary. So (laughs) instead of just saying, oh, I'm mad, which is the basic uh, feeling, saying I'm frustrated, I'm pissed off, or I'm aggravated or agitated. Some people do not have that emotional vocabulary. And I can't even say just men, but I know women may be more in tune to their emotions. And so um, I'm wondering is that when you do work with the men, do you often struggle with them knowing what to say and how to describe their emotions?
2: Yeah, and and I would say that's probably the the biggest part because a lot of times it just comes down to just lack of education of actually what emotions actually are. So when um, a lot of them come in, they always say, oh, I don't have any feelings or I don't have this or I don't have that. And then you yeah. kind of have to show them You know, whether it's through like different role plays um, scenarios or like showing them different examples of even in their own life where they actually did showcase some emotions. So they can actually put, you know, the scenario to the actual meaning or the word, because a lot of times they they go through something and they kind of just push it aside. Like, all right, well, that's that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of, you know, when people say, I don't know. Are you meaning I don't know because I've never explored that thought before? Are you saying I don't know out of habit? Mm. That's useful definitely to consider both sides and to do the work to really reflect on that.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Um, The next question we have
1: is what is something you wish you knew prior to becoming a therapist? And what is something you have learned along the way?
2: Um, I think one of the things was um, understanding kind of what like a Baker act actually is um, as well as the prevalence of how often you'll most likely have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's like a high spike in just people who, you know, who want to die. You know, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, you'll probably get um, at least like five, or six within the week um that's typically how many people i see now who are always saying well i'm having passive thoughts of dying or or like i wish i wasn't here anymore so i think for me i think that probably one probably would have been one of the the biggest things to kind of touch on because that's not something that we typically do get kind of um introduced to until you're actually in the field Mm -hmm. so like like the procedure what it's about what are you supposed to do what are the things that you're looking for when it comes to assessing a client who may potentially be suicidal. Uh what do you do? What are the steps? I think I think that for me, that would have kind of um alleviated a lot of, of my anxieties and fears. Cause when I when I started this new job, I think two weeks in I had a patient who I had to Baker act. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was just like a whirlwind for me because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was also afraid that um, I wasn't going to do it right and then um, everything else would kind of just snowball into something worse. So um, I think for me that that probably would have been one of the biggest things in knowing is, you know, this is a Baker Act and here's the steps. This is what you have Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I will also say too that um, just that even that process, so we call it 1013 in Georgia. Mm-hmm. and um just even going through the whole process and i mean i'm not i don't have the ability to ten, thirteen, 13 anyone but even all the way up until you know that it, it has to happen i will say that that is like the scariest thing because right. like you don't want them to go and then it's like but they need to go because they're dangerous to themselves and mm-hmm. then i You know, I will agree that you learn as time goes on, you learn, you know, different things about the whole process. And I don't think you ever get used to it.
2: No, no, um, not really. And a lot of times it's kind of you're going kind of off your gut. Like if you feel if you feel like if 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 you feel deep down, like if they leave that they're not going to be safe, nine times out of ten, they're not. So, you know, you kind of have to go based off your clinical judgment. And and sometimes that's the hardest, difficult part, especially starting out, because like, I don't know if I have clinical judgment just yet. I don't know where, where I'm at with that. So it's kind of just going based off, um, based on the information I was given, based on what they're telling me, based off what I'm seeing, can I be comfortable enough, and let's say I go home will I not, will I ever think about, you know what, man, I maybe should have did X, Y, Z to this um, client, or maybe I should have did this. So it's yeah. kind of, it's a lot.
0: You're always erring on the side of caution, I guess, when it comes to, you know, harming behaviors. And uh, I have two follow-up questions for that, but one of them is just to let our listeners know what a Baker Act is, That Involuntary hospitalization, Um, as Mahogany mentioned, it's a 1013 in Georgia, um, and that's because of self-harming ideation and intent and things like that. But, um, Jeremy, do you have, out of the five or six that you had mentioned that are incoming, is it kind of a mixed bag when it comes to men and women, or do you see more men um, expressing that desire to harm themselves?
2: Um it's a little bit of both. I would say sometimes a little bit more men, but um but a lot of times it is um kind of both, right? Cuz you can never truly know. So there may be some days where it's like a couple, you know, females who are having like um suicidal ideation or thoughts, and then other days it could be men. Or maybe it's both. So it's kind of um kind of a little bit of both um, of people who are having like the passive thoughts of, Oh, maybe, you know, I wish I wasn't awake or like, I wish, you know, I didn't wake up this morning or maybe my life would have been better if, you know, my parents didn't have me and I wasn't living with them. So it's kind of like a mixed bag of just that. So it's yeah. kind of hard to say.
0: Okay. Makes sense. So, um, I guess what's a, up- Follow up to that, since we're talking about differences of, you know, men and women as clients, um, do you notice any difference with your uh, clients asking for specifically you as their therapist because you're a male?
2: Yeah, I think I think sometimes um, men will, you know, they feel comfortable with other men sometimes, especially when it comes to um, for therapy. Um, and I think the same thing would kind of go for, you know, any, any female clients, you know, they would rather, um, a female therapist or a counselor. And, um, when it comes to the men, sometimes I think there's, there's certain things that they feel that they can't, um, discuss when it comes to the opposite, um, gender, where they feel, you know, I would rather talk about it with a male who would kind of have a similar understanding of, you know, what I'm going through, um. These emotions that I'm feeling—if um, these are actually emotions—how can I kind of put them into um, understanding that works best for me? And I think um, a lot of times they they actively search for like a male who would understand. Um,
1: yeah.
2: And, and I think when you kind of go deeper into it as well, like um, like black males, you know, mm-hmm. they would rather if they if it's possible, because there's not many anyways but yeah. like a black therapist you know if they can find someone who like all right this person gets it if i come to him and i'm saying like um my household is bad or i have like family who don't understand if i talk to this person i know who'll understand and i think that kind of trickles down for other cultures as well i think people find and are more comfortable when they see or have somebody that kind of represents um themselves it makes it a little bit easier for them to open up
0: definitely yeah. And I would like to say to anyone that's listening that there's no harm in asking. It's, it's your preference. There's nothing wrong with that. You see that all the time. And doctors, like when you go to physicals and stuff like that, you know, some people just prefer if there is one on staff to ask. And it doesn't hurt to ask when it comes to mental health, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Our next question is, how do you handle a resistant client?
2: Um, I think all of us at, at some point we've had um, a client who, you know, just doesn't want to do anything. Right. You know, mm-hmm. they, uh, they come in, they sit down, they'll probably stare at you for 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, they won't, they won't say anything. They'll, they'll give you the one words like, yeah, I'm okay. All right. No, I'm good. Or like, um, no, I'm fine. And then you kind of see all right, I have to continue this for another 40 minutes. Cause I need to get them to like their hour at least. Yes. To So there can be some type of progress and, you know, they're not giving you anything. And mm-hmm. then at that point, it's kind of just rolling with it. Right. You know, cause you can't force anybody to engage in therapy. Right. Right. You can't force anybody to do anything. So mm-hmm. you kind of just meet them where they're at and you just roll with the, the resistance and, and kind of, you know, engage in some MI, you know, motivational interviewing, you know, try and get them to a point to evoke change, even though they may not want change just yet, but kind of, you know, bringing them to the, to the doorstep of, huh, maybe down the line, I could see myself doing something about change. It may not be now, yeah. but, you know, it could be next week, could be next month, who knows? Right.
0: Right. It takes a special therapist to ask the hard questions and be able to be vulnerable and be willing to deal with that resistance. If they're unwilling to go there, at least you asked. Mm-hmm, right.
1: And, and Jeremy, have you ever had a um, a client that was just did not want to be there and they sat in silence the whole entire time?
2: Yeah. I've had, um, a few <laughs> patients like that. Um, I, I, I saw them more in, in substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot of people, I used to work in residential and, mm-hmm. and, uh, PHP. So PHP is like the step down for residential, but mm-hmm. for the residential side, those are people who are like just coming from like a detox. So like, you know, so they're still pretty fresh, um, off their drug of choice, you know, they're still coming down you know, so they're still a little bit, you know, anxious. They're still a bit, um, you know, um, angry sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so um, w- when you first get them, like even for the first meeting, they they don't want to do anything and like, they don't want to talk. Um, you know, they don't know you. You know, they also don't trust you as well. So, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times they will just sit there. You know, they'll sit there for the thirty minutes. They'll sit there for the forty minutes. 50 minutes. And um, I've done that before. I've just sat. I just held space with them and sat there. You know, I'll ask them some questions. You know, I'll try and build some um, rapport, kind of ask them, you know, favorite TV shows, do they, do they watch mm-hmm. movies? Do they play games, um, hobbies? Unless they, they just give me no. I'm like, okay, it's fine. But, yeah. you know, it's, but, you know, they're going to have to sit there for the 40, mm-hmm. 45 minutes and you know, if it's silence is what we're going to get, then then we'll sit in silence.
0: Mm-hmm. There's power in that, though, being able to oh, sit yeah. in silence. You build rapport that way. They realize you're still there. You mm-hmm. didn't get up and leave them in the room or, you know, try and refocus them somewhere that they didn't want to go. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: and I also think with that, too i also think with that too um i had to learn how to sit in silence because it was an uncomfortable thing for me so jeremy did you have that experience you know starting out were you comfortable with sitting in silence or was that some that skill that you had to gain over time
2: um i've always been okay with silence um but um i think when you use it in a clinical setting um mm-hmm. you do kind of have to have a little bit of practice because it's it's um, it's a lot more than just sitting there, you know, quiet. You know, there's, there's like a whole art to it to where, you know, if you use enough silence, you know, with direct eye contact with the patient, then, you know, you'll be surprised that they'll start talking first because then they start feeling uncomfortable and they're like, oh, what's going on? Mm. But, um, you know, it silence can be a little bit scary because I think a lot of us um, don't know what to do in moments where it's just quiet. And we always feel like we have to get a word in so there isn't silence, especially as, as a, as a counselor, because our job is to talk, you know, but if there's, if there's silence, we feel like, Oh, I'm not actually doing the job that I went to school for. So I have to fill it with something.
0: Yeah. I definitely struggled with that using silence effectively. I would always be the one that would fill the silence and then I had to take a reflection step back to realize why am I using this mm-hmm. Definitely Had to build that skill there
1: yeah um w- one of the questions on the Instagram live talked about counter counter transference and Jeremy I want you to kind of touch based on like what that is you know what do you think that is and have you ever experienced that
2: right so uh Transference, um, first off, which is kind of where the countertransference come from. Transference is when you have like a client, and let's say the client starts connecting with you on a deeper level, to where they start, they start thinking that you're, let's say, like like their mom or their dad or or brother. So you know, a lot of their emotions that are linked and attached to mom, dad, brother, or sister, they're now linked towards you, right? Counter transference is the opposite of that, which is where you know, as us as counselors, we start internalizing you know stuff that maybe our client may be sharing. So to where now we are starting to have emotions that are linked towards whatever they're expressing. So let's say you know they're talking about like the passing or loss of a family member, mom, dad, or anything like that. Countertransference can come in those moments to where we then start um. You know, correlating or relating to them too much to a point where our emotions then kind of get muddled, and then now the roles are starting to switch to where, all right, I'm the client now, and then let's say the the client is not a therapist because now you're maybe oversharing too much, or you're, um, you know, getting too involved in you know issues that may have to be handled you know in an outside mm-hmm. setting, like in in your own type of therapy or or discussion with um, a family member or a friend. Um, so, you know, and when it comes to counter-transference, one of the things that I typically do um, to avoid that is um, I try to not take really anything personal or I and I try not to get too heavily involved in, um, you know, uh, matters that, um, that my clients may talk about, right? Because there's, there's times where, yeah, there's stuff that I do relate with them. You know, there's there's stuff they talk about, like, oh, yeah, that happened to me once or twice. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, some emotions may start coming up. But, you know, it's kind of taking myself out of that and and realizing it's not about me. It's about them,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you know, and, and keeping that focus as that only, you know, if after work and I'm still activated by that, then I do my own work to ensure I do whatever I need to do to handle that so it doesn't become a problem the next time I see the person.
0: Right. Right. That's so important. Thank you for explaining that. Um there's definitely a benefit in recognizing when it happens, but if you have to reflect on it, that's okay too. Um to the clinicians out there, just as long as they're not doing harm to our clients in the process. So following another misconceptions question um in the beginning when we started our podcasts we know that men typically are the ones that don't seek services what is something you want men to know about mental health
2: um honestly it's about you know you you can ask for help you know um you have emotions it's okay to experience and feel these emotions and and if you are experiencing and feeling these emotions, it doesn't make you less of a man or a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of what men are taught, you know, growing up, you know, as little boys, it's about, you know, men, boys who turn into men. You have to be strong. You have to be um, independent. You can't show fear. You can't show weakness. And I think um, as you grow up being taught in that manner, you know, you start losing, you know, the core, you know, the core things that make us humans, like emotionality, like vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, communication, you know, a lot of that gets lost because, you know, um, the way that people were taught back then it was, you know, you don't cry. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, suck it up, be a man and just mm-hmm. do your business. Um, but as you kind of look back in history, you see what happened when people just, you know, suck it up and, you know, um, mm-hmm. don't cry, don't do this. You know, it it takes a huge toll. You know, and I think as um, as you see uh, people um, get older, you start seeing how that becomes an issue when it comes to um, expressing emotions, understanding what emotions are. And then for men, you know, we don't want to talk about our emotions because the first time you do talk about emotions, you get called weak or mm-hmm. like, oh, you're not a man. So what are you doing?
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. So it's kind of just relearning.
0: It's yeah. like you don't want the vulnerability to be used against you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, And I think that it's from, I mean, in the beginning stages of therapy, like you were saying, were poor and all of that stuff so you they know that you are creating that safe space for them right. and so and I think that's important because the minute you're able to create that safe space and they know that okay oh, hey, Jeremy is not going to judge me or this counselor is not going to judge me they will start to just like let loose and just be there be themselves and so I think that that's very you know important especially for the clients that are um less likely to just open up the first session (laughs) yeah yeah okay um I think that was all of our questions right
0: Kristen yes um I just wanted to make a little note that this is our first of many discussions for our series on men and mental health. Jeremy, you kicked us off. We are so grateful for your time and efforts in completing these questions for us and just sharing your perspective. Um, We're looking forward to continuing the conversation. Men, mental health therapy is for you too. So thank you for reiterating that in the best way. Uh, Relatability for us, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, You know, if you guys ever need me, you can always hit me up. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm available. So, thank you guys for having me.
0: Thanks so much. All right. That's it. Bye. Uh,
1: Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Thing About Therapy. This is Mahogany Hall,
0: and I'm Kristen Lucchella.